We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Crossing route, Gurley makes the catch 20. First down, he hurdles. Far side of the field, stays on his feet. Inside the 10, Todd Gurley making his case for MVP. He throws back shoulder, Higby reaches out and makes an incredible catch for a first down. Off his back foot, he throws to the end zone. Cooper Cup leaping to make the catch. Out of bounds, he has it for six. He's got a knee-high snap, looking left. Now over the middle, he pump fakes. He rolls to his right with Connor Barwin pursuing. He knocks him down. The ball is thrown up in the air and batted away. Incomplete. The Rams' defense clinches it. Goff will come on the field for victory formation. The Rams sideline across the field from us erupts in celebration. And so the playoffs are coming back to L.A. This January at the Coliseum. We, not me, versus the NFC. And for the first time since 2003, the Rams are NFC West champions. Welcome to Rams Talk Radio. This is the managing editor, Derek C. Apollo. I'm here with former Ram, Frank Stams. 1989 draft pick, played three years with the Rams. Frank, how are you? I am well, Derek. <laughs> Thank you for having me on Rams Talk. Well, we're glad to have you. And folks, just so you know, we're, this is an on-the-location interview, so if the audio is a little bit weird, we are actually on the campus of the University of Akron. He's getting ready to go to a Kent State University of Akron basketball game. No, so. no, no, no. Football, baby. Oh, football tonight. So this My is bad. for the this MAC is... East Championship. Oh, so he's he's all... Go on, gung ho on this. Yeah, I'm tailgating um, like a storm's throw from here. <laughs> he's, 
Okay. Yeah, as soon as I'm done with the interview. So we're gonna we're gonna you know try and get him out of here as soon as possible. He's ready to go. He's oh, nothing but time for the Rams. Okay. I love the Rams. You know, you never forget your first love. Well, and that's what one of the first things I want to ask you about is is you know you came into the league out of Notre Dame. You know, won a national championship. Am I right? Yeah, we're, yeah. In my last year, 1988, okay. we beat West Virginia in the Fiesta Bowl. Oh Went undefeated, gosh. too, 12-0. Making me feel old, too. I was 10 years old when I watched guys <laughs> do that. Um, so, you know, let's talk about the experience. What is it like being drafted in the NFL, especially, uh, you know? Well, listen, are the, 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 the ever-foreseen, or whatever you want to say, uh, the one guy, uh, you know, uh, what, what's his name? The, the, the soothsayer from the draft, uh, Mel Kuyper Jr. Okay, yeah. All right. So he had me pegged from uh, rounds three to five. So, you know, what do I know? I'm thinking rounds three to five. I go over. I'm on campus at the University of Notre Dame, and I go over uh, to a, a very dear friend of mine. He was the associate athletic director at Notre Dame. He was a sports information director uh, at Notre Dame forever, a guy named Roger Valdeseri. Roger he was a kingmaker in college football. He's the one that changed mm-hmm. uh, Thiesman's name to Thiesman. Uh, <laughs> he, and he's just, he's been part of Notre Dame history uh, there for, he probably, I think he started in the early 50s. So when I was there, and he'd been there 35 some years. But anyways, I'm over at his house. And next thing you know, with the 45th pick uh, in the 1989 draft, the Rams pick Frank Stams. I couldn't believe it. Right before they made that announcement, the phone call came in. Now, every, all the scouts want to know, the teams want to know, where are you going to be on game day? How can we get a hold of you? And I gave him Roger's number. So let me back up. The phone call came first, mm-hmm. and it was the Rams. It was John. I forget John's name, but he worked in the front office. He said, he says, this Frank Stams? He said, Frank, please hold for Georgia Front Dairy. And so I did, uh, of course. And she, she said that we're, we, we've drafted you, and, and then she made some really nice remarks. And then she said, please hold for John Robinson. And then John Robinson uh, introduced himself. And he, you know, and I said, thank you very much, Coach. I'm so excited, uh, you know, uh, and, 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 and all that. And then I said, okay, you know, we're going to make travel arrangements for you to come out. And then they put me on the phone with the operations guy. And the next day, they're flying me first class from South Bend into uh, Orange County. And, uh, of course, I missed the whole thing on television because I'm talking to everybody uh, on the phone. So that's what it was like the first moment entering the NFL. And we were talking about Eric Dickerson earlier. Now, the Rams had, and you know this, Derek had some ungodly number of draft mm-hmm. choices that year. I want to say close to seven in the first two rounds. Maybe it wasn't that many, maybe five or six. But they took Billy Hawkins out of Miami, a defensive tackle, and in uh, Gary, Cleveland Gary, a running back, yep. out of Miami. Now, they could have been uh, one and two or two. Or, or, or either way, uh, but I was the third pick, and I came with the 45th pick in, his, in the second round. Then they picked the defensive lineman, his name escapes me, out of Auburn, and then they went with Daryl Henley, uh, the last pick in the second round, UCLA, out of UCLA, defensive back. But but that's 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 where I that's probably why I was came with the Rams in such a high pick because they had uh, an, an enormous amount of picks in the first two rounds. So it was a result of the Eric, the three-way Eric Dickerson trade. Yeah, a number of birds. Yeah. So I got a little gregarious there, but no, yeah. I mean, it, it, well, that's what we want to hear. We want to hear your story. We want to hear about. Yeah. Oh, okay, you know, all right. How so, that went. bam! So first class, right in Orange County, they pick me up. I go to Rams 
uh, Park right there in Anaheim. A little old little schoolhouse, uh, a, a, a uh, one-story schoolhouse that was spread out. And I remember the grass being cropped so low. It was it was just bigger than a putting green. And I was like, these are the grass. This is the grass you play on. This is so plush. It's so nice. I mean, back here in Ohio, you see the grass that out yeah. of front window here. <laughs> it's like a forest compared to that grass. It was so nice. And every day was 70 and 72. And I'll never forget when when they got me there. Uh, you know, they were showing me around and I did some workouts out on the field. Hadn't signed yet. Did some workouts out on the field. Then I came in and uh, they said, well, you know, we're going to do some laps around the, uh, the park. And, uh, and I said, what? what? I, just, I just did some drills out on the field. You know, being a baby, being just a baby. I remember Mark Drew. He was a linebacker about six or seven years out of Washington was with the Rams. And later, I, uh, later, Mark and I became really good friends. He looked at me like, what a, what a wimp. And I'm being nice because of the radio. But I thought that was really the first education. It's like, man, you got to man up in this locker room. This is a man's game now. Uh, then as I you know, met the, the staff and they showed me around and showed me where my locker was being, then they, the, the best part was is they took me down to the beach, Newport Beach, to uh, Mr. Irrelevant Weekend. Now, you know Mr. Irrelevant Yes, I weekend. do. Now, at the time, there was what? How many rounds in the draft? Twelve. Twelve. So this guy was the last guy picked out of 12 rounds, and it was a huge party. I've never, never been to Newport Beach before. Heck, I've never been to California before. And uh, I, I go down to this party, and I go with the coaches, which is crazy different from a college because you hardly ever did anything with the coaches. But now it was it was it was it it was different in the pros because it's it's a relationship with your coach, you know, you're you're a working relationship with him. It's it's completely different. You'd call your coach by his first name, like Fritz Shermer. I called Fritz Shermer mm -hmm. Fritz. Uh, Fred Whittingham. I called Fred uh, Whittingham Fred. And it took me a long time to get used to that, but that was the the part of the maturity. So we went down to um, uh, the beach. And we go to this VIP party, and I'll never forget, they start introducing people at the table. And there was this, they go to this guy, John Smith, Jane Smith, Joe Smith, Billy Martin, James Smith, Joe Smith. And I said to myself, did they just say Billy Martin? Billy Martin, the manager of the New York Yankees, had a black cowboy hat on and black sunglasses. And I couldn't believe it, because I grew up uh, an Indians fan, and the Yankees would always come to town, and my dad would always take me to the game in hopes that Billy Martin would get thrown out of the game so we could see the fireworks. And so I circled back to Billy Martin about 20 minutes later. I said, man, I wish my dad was here, uh, Mr. Martin. My dad was a huge Yankee fan uh, or a huge fan of yours. But anyways, we start talking, uh, and he told me how much he admired football. And I said, why? He says, because, you know, in baseball, sometimes I'd have to wait, wait a week, a, a month or a year or five years to get the guy back. He goes, in football, he goes, you can get the guy back the very next play. And I thought, man, that's a competitor. So we do the Mr. Relevant uh, weekend. And by the way, they put me on stage and I won Mr. Hot Sauce, second place. <laughs> all right. And all I had to do was take off my shirt. So we go back, go back to the hotel. They were putting me up in uh, uh, like uh, Orange Coast Plaza, South Coast Plaza there, big uh, mall. And uh, we had dinner with the coaching staff that night. And my agent came with me, a guy named Mike, or, or Steve Stonebreaker. Steve was a former player 
with the uh, uh, in the NFL, and he knew. So Steve was my agent. He was a he was the father of a guy that I played linebacker with, uh, Mike Stonebreaker. And uh, Steve meets me out there, and Steve was a teammate of Fred Whittingham's uh, Whittingham's in in the NFL. They both played with the Saints together, and I thought, good, because you really need a guy to to. Um, you know, just kind of to manage the situation. My lawyer was a friend of mine from Laguna Beach, Vic Ireland. Vic, <laughs> Vic was a real estate lawyer. He showed, the guy never wore, in Laguna Beach, he never wore a tie in his life. And when I, I finally got, the, and I held out for two weeks, things weren't going so well. So I'll fast forward. We get by Mr. Relevant weekend. I stay out there for a, a number, about a month, and I work out and I get get acclimated a little bit. I come back home for you know the the summer, and then I go back out right after the Fourth of July, and I'm working out and showing them that I'm enthused and I want to be a part of training camp and all that. But we can't come to terms on my contract because they took a stance in the second round. That the first, there are three guys in the second round that were drafted because they said the first guy that comes to the table gets the most money. And I said, oh, they're not going to hold true to that. And sure enough, the guy, the last guy that was drafted, I mentioned Daryl Henley, uh -huh. he signs first. And I didn't know this, but his agent and John Shaw were really good friends. And he knew that John Shaw meant what he was saying. And so they signed first, he got the most money, and then my money started dropping. I'm like, oh, man. So, and then the next guy fell in line. The guy was drafted behind me. And then my money dropped even further. And I'm starting to panic. You know, what's going on here? So my agent says, well, get out of town. Come to New Orleans. So I went to New Orleans to see him. You know, you talk about hot. Man, I've never experienced hot in my life. Well, New Orleans and, and say, uh, the 1st of August, it was, it was sick. So finally, the Rams were really smart in their negotiation. They kept dropping it, dropping it, dropping it. And they were going to Japan. I don't know if you remember yeah. Japan. And it was looking like, I'm not going to Japan. They said, well, if you don't sign, we're leaving for Japan. And I told my agent, I said, I want to go to Japan. <laughs> so right before we left, the Rams kicked it back up to their original offer. It was still lower mm -hmm. than, than uh, money for three and four, but they kicked it back up. And I said, I signed. So I got on a plane and I flew back out to uh, L.A., and uh, I was uh, reported to camp right away. And, of course, a couple of days later, we fly over uh, to uh, Japan and play the, the 49ers. Question about that, because in today's game now, we see them playing in London, you know, and Mexico City, the five games this year. And, and it, it used to be, I remember that. I remember the Japan series. I remember those games. Yeah, the American, they call them the American Bowl series. Yeah, the next yeah. year, we went and played Kansas City in Berlin, Germany. How do you feel about the, how they're doing it now compared to how uh, they did it back then? Yeah, you know what? Uh, I, you know, how I feel about it? I wish I was part of it. I think it's wonderful that they're getting out worldwide. Now, whether it's a moneymaker, I don't I don't know, but it's the whole idea of making a worldwide sport. Uh, I, if I was a player, I don't think I'd really like it during the season. During the preseason, it was great to break up training camp. It was awesome. During the regular season, uh, I don't I don't know if I'd be a big fan of that. Um, you know, and then it depends on where, where I am. If I'm in L.A. going to London, that's a, a, a lot different trip than from New York to, to London. Um, so, you know, I don't I don't know. I'm, I'm more of a fan of the preseason, selling it in the preseason than during the regular season. Well, what was that like for you, going to Japan in the oh, preseason and going to Germany the next year? It was awesome. We So we fly over there, 
And by the way, I want to say John Robinson was the best coach. I regret, my one of my biggest regrets looking back at my times with the Rams is I lack the maturity to play in the NFL early, the early maturity, because John Robinson was a real player's coach, and he trusted the players to do the right thing. Unfortunately, I didn't have that maturity. And later on, I developed it, but it didn't have it early on. Uh, so we, f we fly over there and, you know, he treated us like men. And, uh, I remember going to the, <laughs> in the airport, I got a first dose of, uh, first, uh, uh, my first dose of being a rookie is that uh, the guys were drinking in the bar or, uh, bar in the airport and they called me over and they all ordered drinks. And I thought it was a big shot. I have a beer because you never, mm -hmm. you never went to a bar when you're in college. Yeah. So the plane, we got a call for the plane. Everybody got up and they gave me the bar tab. It cost me about $100 to make that stop for that beer. So that was my first taste of being a rookie. Then the flight over, we got there. Uh, you know, Japan was great, but everything was miniature. The, the buses were miniature. The beds in the hotel were miniature. Everything was, was miniature. Of course, you know, the culture is, is a smaller culture. So and then I remember how humid it was over there at that time. And then we played the uh, 49ers. And I remember doing some things with the 49ers and traveling in the uh, elevators with some of the players, especially the crazy guy, the linebacker. What was his Tom, name? Was it Tom Rathen? No, 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 no. No, no, no. no. Oh, Romanowski. Bill Romanowski. Romanowski. Yeah. Bill Romanowski. He, he, he just looked like a punk. Uh, and, and I was like, man, this guy, he's, he's throwing it. It was like being in an elevator with, with him was like being, you know, uh, side by side. When you see the fighters at the weigh in, mm -hmm. that's kind of what it was like. You know, it was trying to, you know, display this intimidation. So play the game and I'll never forget that game because you know how the players or the, or the, the, the starters, the veterans play a quarter and then everybody else plays. Well, that, that's what happened. And of course, that game, if I'm not mistaken, and you guys should double check this, I think that game went to two overtime. So I ended up playing a game and a quarter in that and special teams. I, I, I was completely exhausted after that game. I fell asleep on the floor in the plane on the way home. Yeah, Warren, if, if memory serves me right, and I'm getting old too, geez, I believe it was 16 13 Rams. You I, I can't tell you the score. I mean, it went, it went to overtime. You're right. 16-13, I think. Oh, I'll it was check ridiculous. it when I get home. It, even though we played in the Tokyo Dome, it was it was just, it was still humid in there. But I'll never forget, they lined me up because I could rush the passer. And I lined up over Bubba Paris one time. And I had Montana dead to rights. This is like in the, you know late in the uh, first quarter, early second. And I had him beat. And Bubba Paris grabs me by the jersey and pulls me down. There was no way he was letting me get to Montana. He got flagged for it, so that was some consolation there. But I remember playing in that game and special teams. I mean, I got a decleater on Rathman running down on the kickoff. The coaches loved that. And then on the kickoff team, I was on the receiving team when I decleated Rathman coming down. And then on the kickoff team, they I remember them highlighting when we got back how fast I was. And I was, you know, I hit everybody by a couple lengths. And they really liked that because when you get in the NFL, and I was just telling a, a group of kids this at one of the local high schools, is, and we're talking about their effort. You know, they, they one, they expect you to make mistakes. Two, the, the, what they want to see most of you, most from you, is your effort because they can't coach effort. If they've got to make you do something, then basically they're going to have to make you do something all the time. And they're not in the business of doing that. 
So that was the big thing is, is I love that approach that you're going to make mistakes, just go a thousand miles an hour. And so I concentrated on that and I was able to impress them that I will give great effort. Then after that, I just got to learn how to be a pro. And uh, one last thing, and I know I'm bouncing all over the place, but my, uh, another big welcoming into the NFL was Jackie Slater. And this was after we came back from Japan. And we're going through some uh, drills, and they were live drills with the offense. And, man, I started to pass rush on him, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize it at the time what he did. Uh, but he did it with a purpose, is he headbutted the crap out of me. And, man, it was like somebody took a sledgehammer and just hit me in the head. And I, I was like, dang. And uh, after that, I had this knot on my forehead for about four four weeks. And it really hurt my performance because, I mean, I've got this knot on my head. I mean, I'm you know, probably gave me a concussion. And it was, uh, looking back, I said, and this was years after I was done playing. I was like, now I know what he was doing. He was saying, welcome to the uh, NFL rookie. And Jackie Slater, he was a, a very, uh, he was a great offensive tackle. But, man, I'll tell you what, he was a mean dude. He was a mean dude. Well, we've been trying to get a whole time. We would love to talk to him. He played for so long that, you know, oh, he's such a yeah. legend, in, you know, for the Rams, both, you know, because of, of the position he played, but just the anchor that he was, you know, playing in two eras really for the Rams with, with the running game in the early 80s and moving into more of a passing game as they headed towards the late 80s. You know, just to be able to talk to him would be wonderful. And, you know, getting into that late 80s, the 1989 season for you, that was pretty much the last really, you know, solid right. season of a winning era for the Rams before things just went downhill. Right. What was that season like for you as you guys went in there and eventually played the 49ers in the championship? It, 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 was, it was awesome. You mentioned Slater. Slater was at the left tackle. Irv Pankey was at the right tackle. Mm-hmm. And Jackie Slater, I, you know, my, my rookie year, it was, it was a great rookie year. And we had a great locker room. Guys in, it was, a, it was, I mean, when I say great locker room, I'm talking about leadership. You know, something right now, when I finished my career at the Browns, and what today what the Browns don't have is they don't have any leadership. You know, Slater was a leader. Uh, Doug Smith, the center, was a leader. Tom Newberry didn't get any more solid than him. You know, you had Deval Love on that team. And I just saw him the other day. He was another guard. He was in the Southern, uh, played for Southern Cal. But then Sl- Slater, Tony Slater, Tony Slayton, uh, mm-hmm. he was on that team. And then um, Larry Kelm was a linebacker when I got there. Mel Owen uh, was there. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, Henry Ellard. These guys... Uh, you know, and Everett was a good, he was a good quarterback. These guys were, in my opinion, all professionals, and it was a great locker room. And that first year, we win like six games somewhere in the middle of the season, and then we hit a, a, a losing streak. And it didn't look like we were going to make the playoffs, but we did. We made the, got the wild card game at Philadelphia. So we go to Philadelphia, and we beat Buddy Ryan and his Eagles. And I think that was on... Uh, if I'm not mistaken, New Year's Eve, uh, we win that game. And then the next week, we had to go back out to the Giants uh, and play, uh, and then we win that game. And you know that game. That was the, the one. tunnel game, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Flipper oh. Anderson catches that ball and runs right in the tunnel. Straight in the tunnel. <laughs> it's classic. It's just classic. But in that game, I'll never forget watching the offense from the sidelines and watching Jackie Slater 
in Lawrence Taylor go at it all game long. And you talk about a couple of Brahma Bulls. I mean, man, the, the pounding and the talking. I mean, it was something special to behold. And, of course, yeah. Well, I was well, – keep going. I mean, I, I just had a thought there, too. Is When I talked to Jim Everett a few weeks ago, Jim – Mentioned in that game the fact that there were so many players on the defense hurt. You guys had you guys only had two men down in some cases. Yeah, on the line in Fritzsher, and that actually was happening a week before we went into the playoffs banged up. And I'll never forget Fritzsher made a big deal about this, and I think today they still use it. He called what we ha- he played the the uh, uh, the downs. Normally you have uh, a nickel situation in third and long, but he played. I think all because we were so banged up on the defensive line, he played what they called big nickel. Okay. Uh, and it, it was probably what they're looking at like today with that 3-3 defense. Um, and, and it was just kind of, it was very, Fritz was very innovative. Uh, and he came up with the big nickel and it was successful. Uh, and that was the way to handle the, um, uh, the injuries that we had. And Everett was right. We were, we were hurting a little bit. So we, we win we win against the Giants and of course you know the next week we've got to go just you know an hour flight north to San Francisco and you know they're just catching those guys. You talk about success that the Rams had in the '80s. I caught the tail end of that. You know what they make the playoffs six of the eight years uh, in the '80s or whenever it was. John Robinson had a great run with that staff. Marv Goo, Hudson Hawk, who is still coaching in the NFL, was on that. Norv Turner was just a lowly uh, off, uh, tight ends coach on that. Fritz Shermer, Fred Whittingham, his son Kyle now is the head coach out at Utah. Uh, who else was on that uh, staff? Had some really good ones. But uh, uh, and then the next week we go up to uh, uh, San Francisco, and of course, you know, we get annihilated. But I think that year they went on to win the Super Bowl, if I'm not mistaken. They stay like they crushed Denver. They crushed Denver. Oh, my God. It was brutal. Yeah, so good. That makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that came too. Ooh, brutal. Um, well, you know, the next year, you know, the Rams were favored by many, uh, at least experts. And, and you were in the locker room, you know, things are different than the local expectations. But the experts, I, I saw so many saying, you know, Rams make the playoffs, even possible contenders. It's 1990 now. You know, they, they're going to get past the quote unquote fam sack. And. It turns out to be your most productive year as a Ram, numbers-wise. But what happened with the team, and, and, and how were you able to shine? Well, I, I felt good like I was coming to my own with the uh, uh, playing in the NFL. I, again, I had great coaches, Fritz Shermer and Fred Winningham. They taught me more in a year of playing with them than I'd learned uh, you know, in the previous 18 years of playing football. I mean, it was just, it was just a, a, an incredible enlightenment for me um that year i had you know i did i had a good year i was involved i mean i, I was playing one a sweet position i was playing the will in the three four so i you know and that's the playmaker in in defenses a lot of times that guy there's not a hat for him there's not a blocker for him and he just runs to the ball and it was it was a great position for me and you know and i performed and i was productive uh, it, but as far as the rest of it, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I really, I was too young to really pinpoint it. I was more worried about myself and trying to fit in rather than to see the whole big picture of what was going on, even from the front office to the, the coaching staff to the players. You know, I, I'm not a guy that reads the paper. 
Uh, you know, I could care less what they say in, in, in the paper. Uh, you know, I'm just trying to do my job and be a good teammate. And it, whatever the problems were, I know were oblivious. I was oblivious to them if, if they existed at all. Uh, and, and I know that next year, I couldn't even tell you, I don't, did we make the playoffs? I don't believe. 1990, you guys went 5 and 11. Oh. And yeah. then 3 and 13 your last year there. Yeah, yeah. So that was yeah, it was brutal. So five and eleven. So that's when they got rid of Fritz Schirmer and they brought in Jeff Fisher uh, from Philadelphia. And then I think things got even worse. Uh, you know, I you 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 would know better than I why things were, were falling apart. Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I know at the end of my sophomore season, I blew. Up, I hurt my knee against San Francisco, and then from there it was just all downhill with injuries. It was just one injury after the next, one after the next. And then they, when Chuck Knox came in, going into my fourth year, they traded me because I was having trouble getting on the field. And then I go to Cleveland. I was able to kind of, you know, reestablish myself, got a starting position. Uh, but anyways, you know, then and the injury bug came up again. But, um, you know, why things fell apart with the Rams, Derek, I, I, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't really know. Well, and – I have a couple questions for you, and it's, especially most of the fans who listen to this podcast are going to be the LA side, and, and they're going to, and you know, the the thoughts and feelings on like Georgia Frontier and how the front office was run back in those days, um, really kind of are in, you know still up in the air. Many people, you know, once the Rams left, they you know Georgia became the devil. What was she like as an owner for you? <laughs> She was great. She was fine. I never saw her. I saw her like three times the entire time I was there. Well, I'll never forget one time we waited like an hour and a half, maybe even two hours, for her to show up on picture day. And when she got there, she was pleasant. She, Like I said, I had a conversation with her on the phone when I was drafted. She was fine then. Um, you know, and then the, the like the third time I saw her, maybe I saw her a couple more, but these are the only times I remember. I saw her in Philadelphia. I mentioned that wild card mm-hmm. game. And I saw her come in the locker room. Now that was that was something special. Guys are walking around half naked, if not naked, <laughs> and you got the owner hugging players. I said, "Man, this is, you're not in college football anymore." Uh, it was just wild. Uh, but you know, is you know, and I don't know, you know, the Rams could have spent a little bit more money on the players and on the franchise. Uh, I think you know, uh, coming out, I remember you know the the scuttlebutt was is that. You know, they didn't spend, they didn't, you know, of all the franchises to go to, they're like four or five teams you don't want to go to. And they had the Rams pegged as one of those because they were just, well, we'll put it bluntly, they were cheap. Um, and, uh, but, you know, that's not to say you can't win being, you know, let's say conservative or, or frugal. Uh, Cincinnati was that way. Uh, I heard uh, Pittsburgh wasn't a great team uh, as far as, you know, getting money. I heard San Francisco was, and just in a comparison, when we played San Francisco over in that fir- at that first preseason game in Japan, I remember that we got like you know, as far as gifts, little Game Boys. Mm-hmm. Now for me, that, you know, that's fine. I don't I don't care. I'm not in it for the gifts. But some of the players, some of the players were upset because the Niners they had sweatsuits, they had TVs, they had VCR, and get that kind of treatment. Um, and so maybe that had maybe that contributed a little bit because to be honest with you, and you know this, and, and it's across the board in any industry. If you don't feel like you're getting paid what you're worth, 
I don't think you're going to be as productive uh, as as you can be. But when you feel like you're going to get you're you're getting top dollar, that, that puts I think that puts a little added something into your performance or your step or going to work every day. Well, that's a, I think that's an element of economics one on one right there. You know, you get what you pay for, and vice versa. And so yeah, I totally get that. And that's well, that's one of the. Uh, that's actually one of the things that we've we've seen numerous fans and readers over the years mention. Those who follow the team back then is that yes, she was a bit frugal. And here's maybe you can bust this. Is, is it a myth or not? There are those within the fan, within the fan ranks that believe that Georgia Frontier purposely um, sabotaged the team in order to make it possible to move. I don't think that would. I, I think I, I. I don't think so because I'll say this. You know, a lot of individual personalities come into play, in in their lifestyles. I thought she. She. I, I think she had a place up in Beverly Hills. She, she's not going to want to leave. And she was former what showgirl in Las Vegas. That that's what I heard, anyways. Um, she's not going to want to leave that to go to St. Louis. Now St. Louis is a great town, but it's not Beverly Hills. She's not going to want to leave that, but. It's like here in Cleveland, but when the opportunity came up to to really to to make money on this move, and that's what I see these moves as, uh, they're money makers. Then it was a no-brainer. Uh, I I don't think she she tanked it. I think it just fell into her lap, and she had a couple shrewd guys there running the team: John Shine John and Jay Zygmunt. Oh yeah. And, and they recognize the economic value of moving the team. All these teams. If San Diego goes from San Diego to L.A., I mean, what is, what is that? They do it for the money. It wouldn't surprise me at all if San Diego spends three years in L.A. and they move back to San Diego. I mean, it's just a huge, big money grab. Uh, and that's the way I saw it. I don't think there was any purpose tanking of it. Uh, but when all of a sudden that's how the chips started to fall, they they saw the opportunity and took advantage of it. Well, you, once you left the Rams and were traded, like you said, to Cleveland, though, you know this this is your hometown area here, and obviously you're back now. You're we're here talking in Ohio. What was it like to play for the hometown Browns? Oh, it was great. You know, people ask me, you know, did I like LA? I said, man, I are you kidding me? I love living in Los Angeles, and I love playing for the Rams. Uh, and, and tongue in tongue in cheek, I would they they would ask me what was your favorite part, and tongue in cheek, I would answer the off season because it was so nice. <laughs> but you know, the thing about the the Rams, and I love the fans, man. Them cats and the watermelon heads, they were the best. But there weren't as many. Let's put it this way: there weren't as there's more of those watermelon heads here in Cleveland, um, and and. Yeah, you played in front of bigger crowds. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, in Cleveland, you know, you got Sunday football and that's it. Uh, and during these, you know, uh, late summer and fall months, in early winter, out there in LA, there were a lot of things to do on a Sunday afternoon. So, uh, yeah, you got the great fans and the rabid fans there, but there's just more of them back here. So it, it takes the energy level up. Mm-hmm. What was it like playing in Cleveland? It was awesome. It was awesome. But to be honest with you. Uh, I'll, I'll say this. I love my time in Cleveland. I'm glad I played here. Uh, but I'll tell you, looking back on it, there was nothing like playing in L.A. I mean, because 
you know, in, in December, you know, wearing a T-shirt. Now, you know, I'm not saying, you know, I'm soft and I'm a fair weather fan, but man, that, that makes a difference on your injuries mm -hmm. and your ability to get to practice and all kinds of things like that. I'll tell you what, though, I bet you there's one thing you are glad you missed out on that way. What's that? You got there after a couple years after the Ramit video. The what? You missed the Ramit video. What's the Ramit video? Oh, geez. Um, I'll have to send you a copy of it. And I'm sure you've heard of it because, you know, it was pretty legendary. But it was the, the Rams' response to the Super Bowl shuffle from the Bears. Oh. And they had all the Rams out in, out in the field there doing this dance to, to a song they called Ramit. Ramit. And, you know, now it could be like a popular porn song, I guess. But Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that's where I thought you were going. I got to send you the goo. I got, I'll have to yeah. send you the YouTube of that. I mean, that's still something they, <laughs> they play. Um, and when we talked to Leroy Herbin, I actually asked him about that, too. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's the best, Leroy. Um, well, he he was, is the best. He was a great Let me Irvin. tell you my Leroy Irvin story. And, and, and you talk about your education of being mm -hmm. a pro. First year, we're out at training camp. We're out at Cal State Fullerton, okay? Mm -hmm. So it's like 20 degrees hotter out in Cal State uh, at Fullerton. <coughs> the following year, we go down to uh, UC Irvine. Man, that's heaven on earth. You got you can see the ocean from where we're practicing, and you get an ocean breeze, and it never gets too hot. But anyways, back to Fullerton. So, you know, we're going through two a days and I go as a rookie, I go back in there. Uh, you know, we have our morning practice. You go back in, you shower. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to be late for my uh, for the, the practice. I wanted to be on time and all that. So, you know, I didn't get much of a, a, a nap in at all. I go back. I ate lunch, didn't get much of a nap in. I go back early to get ready for practice. And I'm I'm man, I'm in full uniform taped up in everything with a half hour to go just sitting at my locker and just sweating i probably lost 10 pounds in that half hour just waiting for practice to begin i get up to go to practice and here comes leroy irvin flying in all right in a t-shirt and shorts and flip-flops he kicks off his flip-flops he throws his shorts down takes off his shirt he's naked he throws on his pants with no pads on him puts on his shoes and throws his shoulder pads over his bare chest, all right, and grabs his jersey and helmet and runs out the door, all in a matter of like 45 seconds. And I said to myself, now that's how you do it. That that's, I'm doing it all wrong here. And, and now that's how you do it. He was so fun to play with, guys. And he gave me great education, Mark Giroux. Uh, uh, Mel Owens gave me a great. Larry Kelm was a great backer to play besides because Larry was a real student of the game. Another guy, Vince Newsom, mm -hmm. safety, was a real student of the game and solid as the days long. I remember on the way trips, he would always he would take orders for guys on the plane because he'd always go to the Soul Kitchen in L.A. and bring on fried shrimp and, and fried chicken or whatever. He had bags. He had big boxes <coughs> full of it. And I thought, what a nice guy. What, he and Jerry Gray. Jerry Gray was just a great guy. Doug Reed was on a defensive line. Loved playing with him. Mike Peel was another guy. Uh, it, it just, just really, it was a great locker room. And that's what I missed in Cleveland. Because Cleveland did not have a great locker room. It was fragmented. It was it was torn apart. It was awful. But the Rams had a great locker room. Um, and they had a great coaching staff. And I was really lucky to be part of that. Well, you're talking about Brown's locker room. That's when Belichick was there. Well, yeah. And you know what happened. I mean, you know, I mean, they just crucified Belichick when he was there. 
when you when you played for him. Yeah. And so what went wrong in Cleveland for Belichick? Where went right for him afterwards? So Bill, in my opinion, was doing a, a great job with one arm tied behind his back. When you had Georgia, he probably didn't know what was going on as far as the, the, the you know the, the, the team and mm-hmm. operating the team and the play calling and all that. I mean, she she probably knew how much money they were making, but she didn't. She could care less about how the team was being run and the play. Mm-hmm. You know, the football end of it. And Cleveland, not so much. You had an owner that was he, Modell. yeah, you know, kind of maybe a forerunner of Jerry Jones. Mm-hmm. You know, real active in the team and the operations. And I thought uh, there was a lot of things working against Bill Belichick. One, he followed a guy, Bud Carson, great football mind, but he, he, and I talked about John Robinson being a player's coach. Bud Carson made John Robinson look like the greatest Vince Lombardi as a disciplinarian. I understand, and Clay Matthews was telling me this later, he said if it was raining too hard, they would stay inside uh, and not go out and practice. So you, so, Belichick inherits a real soft team. And we, when I was with the Rams, we went and played Cleveland. I lined up against Ozzie Newsom, and, and, I, and I felt the same way. I, this team is soft. We ended up beating them uh, in Cleveland. 30-23. Yeah. And uh, I was like, wow. You know, and we weren't. I don't think we were having a great year. Maybe we were. But I, I, I just it was one of the easier games we played that year. So, you know, I, I thought the team, Belichick inherited a soft team. He's got huge involvement from the owner. Uh, he's trying, he's changing. He got rid of a lot of players that the veteran players in there didn't like. I remember Clay Matthews had a hard time with Bill Belichick releasing Cody Risen. Uh, that didn't sit well. He's trying to change what Bernie's doing as far as, you know, his, his pocket presence. He tried to change what Michael Dean was doing, going from a 4-3 to a 3-4. And it was just too much change, and there was too much resistance in that locker room. And then his, his downfall was really treating the press. You know, probably he, he was treating the press the way he did without the number of wins he has now. Now he can do whatever he wants, and people, like, they love Belichick. Back then, they thought he was being aloof. He, he just was being combative. And he probably was all those <laughs> things. And then the players were feeding inside information to the press, and the press was just gobbling it up. You would see in the paper a source close to the Browns, and these were players giving inside information, and it was just tearing apart the team. The team was fractured. The players hated the coaches. Uh, the coaches hated the players, and then they. And I don't think the staff really got along with Bill because he was hard on them. So there, you talk about a crazy, crazy situation, and, and despite all that, Ninety four is the last time the Browns have won a playoff game. I can't. That's hearing, hard to believe. That's yeah, almost twenty five years. Hearing you talk about that, you know, and thinking, man, but Belichick got them into the playoffs with Vinny Testaverde as a quarterback. Yep. And guess who? He, and you know who he beat? How they built oh, it in a plain dealer. We played the Patriots. Yeah. Yeah, they built it as uh, what do they call mentor versus protege, protege, mm-hmm. yeah, the tune and Bill Parcells. <laughs> and you know, you know, here, geez, in Northeast Ohio, it's, it's still a sore spot watching this team play now. But you know, after that, you you um, you moved on, and you actually what was it nine years in the NFL? Seven, seven. I was a little more than that. Uh, I was hoping I could have. I could have done was, nine years, stand on my head, but 
I thought, oh, God, you know, you get into it and you just think, oh, and what really hurt me is the injuries, just injury after injury after injury. And it just plays, it just does funny things to your head. It was just frustrated and, you know, it was just awful. What made you decide to leave the game and go ahead and try something else? Yeah, no, it, it just had my, it was my time. I was 30 years old and had a couple of knee surgeries. I think about, you know, that great locker room with the Rams. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden that money came in in 92, 93 with that, the, the collective bargaining yep. agreement. And then everything changed. Then it was a more player. It was, it was more like, you know, instead of playing for your teammate next year, the players were playing for the highlights on ESPN or the Madden football. The money came into it, and it just changed everybody's. Uh, it changed a lot of guys' perspectives, and uh, it just you know I was like, this isn't. I don't know this game anymore. It's everybody, every man for himself, and uh, you know I had banked some money, and I was like, you know I'm going to go do something else. Well, how do you feel about the game now? I, I think it's basically the game now. They've turned it into what they wanted it to be. It's a product. It's show business. And John Robinson warned me about that. I remember, you know, when it, when I was struggling with injuries there with the Rams, he came to me when, during warm-ups. He says, Frank, i got to tell you, he said, listen, listen, only you know your body best. you got to do what's right for yourself. He was talking about my interaction with the trainers because the trainers are pushing you to get back on the field. And he was trying to educate me to be a pro and to say, listen, you know, you've got to take care of yourself. You've got to stand up to the trainers and say, hey, listen, I can't go today. And because my body is my tool. And he was just such a great mentor in that regard. And I feel I've got such regret feeling that I've let him down because I, I didn't I didn't have, again, the maturity to, to handle that. I, I, you know, looking back, I wish he would have stayed at L.A. and the team would have stayed at L.A. And, you know, because he was such a great coach. And they loved me because, you know, I went to, to Notre Dame. Those guys came out there. They were all SC guys. They embrace me, and people that don't know the, the the tradition in the history, they think, oh, they, they those guys must have hated you. No, they didn't hate me. They loved me because of of what I represented to them. But anyways, you know, getting back is is you know, my body started to fail on me, and uh, I was like, you know, this is enough. This is enough. What do I think of the game now? That's what we're talking about. It's it's a product. It, it's you know, it's it's uh, it's television. It's 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 showbiz, and uh, I, I you know I don't know I don't like it where it is with the rule changes and all that. I understand protecting the players, but it's so subjective with the referees and what they can what what's a penalty one play and and not a penalty the next play. I mean it's just you know it's a, it's a game. It's a different different game. I feel sorry for the guys playing it. It's a different animal. It's a different animal completely. Now the Rams moved back last year. And just judging from the comments before the podcast started, it seems like you feel like that's where they belong. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to get out there for the celebration. I just couldn't. So, yeah, well, let me ask, years later now, you, you mentioned there was something, you know, there was something special to you about this. This was the team that drafted you. This is the team that, you know, how does it feel for you now to say, yeah, I played for the Los Angeles Rams? Oh, my God, it's awesome. I still have my helmets, my jerseys. Uh, I'm so proud of my time out there. Looking back, I should have stayed out there. Terry Crews was part of the team <laughs> when I was out there. Terry Hollywood, and we all know what he is now. Mm -hmm. Goldberg was part of it. Goldberg yeah, and I, yeah. li along with another guy named Paul Butcher, we all lived together. 
Paul was the greatest. Went to a little small school in Detroit called Wayne State. That's a guy you ought to talk to, Paul Butcher. Uh, we all lived together and, and, and raced hell together and had a great time. And uh, I ran into Goldberg when I was with the, the Panthers uh, after a long stretch. But, uh, you know, I, we went, I went one uh, weekend in the offseason. They needed some players to go up and do a commercial for Coach. So me and Pat Terrell and I forget who the other player was, we went up there and met the cast and crew of, of coach and mm -hmm. we did the player and i'll never forget asking you know whoever was handling us that day i said so so you know what do you want us to say and they're like say we don't want you to say anything just just just, there. just stand <laughs> there just stand there and don't say a word but you know i mean then you know i had some great i met some great friends out there and you know in the off season you know you, you saw everything that you you wanted to see and uh, and during the season it, it was you know it was great uh you know, I met like I talked about the coaches and, and my experience and, and where I lived. I mean, I lived in Newport and I had good friends in Laguna that I, and I knew before I got out there. And it just it was a, just absolutely probably coming back. It was just a wonderful time. I was by myself. I was young. Uh, it, it, it was a wonderful time for me to experience so much play football at the same time. And I was on my own back here is a little bit different. It became more of a a, a, a job that may be hard to maybe hard to understand but out there it was just like man i'm living the dream and then coming back here you know you're fighting the elements you've got a lot of friends and family tugging on you uh you know you're living in the in, in the industrial midwest mm -hmm. uh it's more reality than it yeah. was la la land sure right well that's why that's called la la land for a reason right you know <laughs> Hey, hey, by the way, I think according to the scheduling rotation, the Rams are due to play here um, in Cleveland. I want to say in two years. Awesome. That might be that might be your time to go out there and awesome and reacquaint yourself with the team. Um, I, it's getting late here, and the time is, is running short. I guess the question I want to ask you with is now, you know, what are you doing now with your life, and and how did football help prepare you for that? Oh, great question. Football helped me prepare for you know just about anything you want to tackle in life, pun intended. It teaches, you know, goal setting, uh, objectives, problem solving, and problem solving fast. You know, everything now is critical thinking. It's critical thinking. Jeff Fisher, when he came to the team, we had, we used to call defenses based on the formations the offense would line up. And then if the formation would shift or if there was motion, you had to change everything and communicate that to everybody in, this, in, in a split second. So, you know, you talk about critical thinking, decision making, taking care of your body. These are all things that you take care of and, and you represent to, say, a team that you're leading. It makes all the difference in the world. I mean, look at all these guys that you would know that are involved in football and they would be successful across the board and no matter what they did. You know, who comes to mind first is Lou Holtz and then Saban was at Cleveland when I was there. Of course, Bill Belichick would be a success at anything. But what I do now is I'm, a, I'm the executive director of the first tee of Greater Akron. And it's a youth-serving organization that teaches kids life skills, you know, our un the mostly underserved population, teaches them life skills. Through, uh, but golf is not the only vehicle which we teach these life skills. We have educational programs such as uh, ACT test or prep mm -hmm. testing. Uh, we have, uh, 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 we work with the Akron Canton Food Bank here in town, uh, teaching kids how to prepare healthy meals. So we've got about 800 kids in our chapter. Uh, there are about close to 200 chapters throughout the United States. 
uh, and I've been doing that for about three years, and it's a wonderful organization. Okay, last question. Sure. Last question. Well, I have two questions for you. The one key question here is, what do you want the fans in L.A. to remember about you and your time? There? I, thank you. Because I, I want them to remember me as a guy that loved playing for the Rams. I, 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 I loved playing for the organization. Uh, I thought, you know, and I've been with, I was with five different organizations. And I, I loved playing for that organization. It was a classy organization. There were good players. I, I want them to remember me as being a good teammate that played hard or played hurt and, you know, gave it everything that I could and, uh, you know, enjoy, and just enjoyed my time out there. So I hope that makes sense. Okay. And finally, your last question I have for you, it's actually probably the easiest one, is do you have a Twitter or any kind of social media that the fans can follow you on? Frank Stams is my Twitter. What do you call it? Frank Stams at Twitter? Yeah, we at Frank Stams? Yeah, at Frank Stams. Okay, at Frank yeah, Stams. At Frank Stams. Yeah, and then my Facebook page. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we, we just had a great time going down memory lane with Frank Stams. Frank, we just want to thank you for coming on the show with thank us. Thank you, Derek, for having me. And for Frank Stams, this is Derek C. Paul, the manager of Rams Talk, saying adios. control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% .9 of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% .9 of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. For the ones who know that a little late is always too late, and that the clock doesn't stop just because you're missing a part, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, and our KeepStock inventory management solutions help ensure you have the right stuff in the right place at exactly the right time. Visit Granger.com/keepstock to learn more. Granger for the ones who get it done.